20th century Catholic missionary Lawrence Levasic once said, fatherhood is a vocation in God's service to be not held lightly or frivolously, but with the serious determination of serious men. And of course, the reason why fatherhood is so important is because of what's at stake. Okay, as a, as a father, what I want more than anything else for my own kids is for them to become everything that God created them to be. Right? To not only recognize who they are in Christ, but to fully realize who they are in Christ. Right? It's, it's one thing as a Christian to understand that you've been made new in Him. But it's something entirely different to actually live like it. Because being born again, as Jesus put it in John 3, that's something God does for us. But actually living like it, well, that's something we do for Him. And so as a father, uh, of course, I offer my children guidance and instruction. I, I teach them skills and give them resources for daily living. Every good thing that I can give them, I give them. Why? Well, because I love them. And I want them to become everything that God created them to be. But at the end of the day, they still have to do something with that, right? It's my responsibility as a father to equip my kids for this life. It's their responsibility to make the most of whatever they've been equipped with. And listen, it, uh, it's not about trying harder to be a better person. No, it's about accepting the fact that you are a new person, a new creation in Christ, and then simply living like it. And so the purpose of following Jesus, you understand, is not to become a better person. No, the, the purpose of following Jesus is not to become a better person. It's to become a new person. That's what makes Christians different than everyone else in the world. It's not something we've done. It's something he has done in us by making us new, which is exactly what this terribly broken, dysfunctional, lost world needs to see right now, beaming through this spiritual darkness like pure light. But for the world to actually see that, for the world to see what Christ has done in us, we first have to own the fact that we are indeed made new in him, and then we have to act like it. But listen, you will never truly live like a child of God until you first embrace the fact that you are a child of the living God. And that's the problem with much of the church today. We're more preoccupied with our relationship to this world than we are with our relationship to Jesus. And the result is we act more like the world more than we act like Jesus. Because you emulate what you focus on, right? Which again is, is, uh, is why fatherhood is so profoundly important because your kids, particularly while they're young and still focused on their parents, they will learn to emulate or imitate who you are and how you live. So, so when you see your kids, when they see you, more importantly, fathers, when your kids see you, what do they see? Right when when un unbelievers see you, what do they see? Someone who's been made new, someone who looks like Jesus, or someone who looks like anyone else in the world who doesn't follow Jesus. And and I'm just telling you, we have a potent example of this in our story today. 
as we continue our sermon series through 1 Samuel, where Saul actually becomes someone totally new, and yet his response to being made new is not only not what you would expect, but it's also not that different from many Christians today. Listen, not because we haven't been made new, but because often we refuse to live like it, to fully embrace our new identity in Christ Jesus. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time at 1 Samuel chapter 10 and see what life looks like when you actually own up to who you are in Christ when he makes you new. 1 Samuel 10, we'll begin by reading the first 13 verses. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him. This is Saul, he's anointing, and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel. You shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies and this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on there, from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that you shall come to Gibeah Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines, and there as soon as you come to the city you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man." Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and uh, sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. If you were here for chapter 9, you'll remember that Saul, the son of a landowner from the tribe of Benjamin, was sent out by his father along with a servant to find some missing donkeys. And while roaming the countryside for several days, they come upon the land of Zuf in the hill country of Ephraim, the home region of Samuel, the great prophet and judge of Israel. And Samuel meets Saul and says to him, today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days, do not set your mind on them, for they've been found. That's chapter 9, verses 19 and 20. And then he treats Saul like a king. 
He makes Saul the guest of honor at the feast. He feeds him the sacred portion of the sacrifice normally reserved for the priests. He gives him the most desirable place to spend the night on the top deck of the roof. And in the morning, Samuel escorts Saul to the edge of city, which was an honor in and of itself. And then the story picks up here at chapter 10, where Samuel anoints Saul as king and prophesies over him very specifically down to the last detail, everything that will happen to him, not only in his distant future, but over the next seven days, most of which will actually happen the same day that the prophecy is given. Just so there can be absolutely no doubt whatsoever that what Samuel is saying is true and in fact from God. And so Saul receives the word of God from Samuel. And just as God's word always does when it is received, it utterly transforms Saul. Just as Samuel says in verse 6, Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. You will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. You will be turned into another man. In the ancient Hebrew, it's, it's the word hafak. It literally means to overthrow or to transform. Verse 9, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. Verse 10, the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Do you understand? This wasn't an improvement for Saul. This wasn't this wasn't the improved Saul. He wasn't becoming a better version of himself. No, Saul was becoming someone altogether new. He was turned into another man. Not a better man. Another man. As God gave him what? Another heart. Not a better heart. Another heart. And the change was so complete. And it was so radical that all who knew him could hardly recognize who he was. And listen, this is meant to be a picture of the transformation that happens to you and to me when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the lives of Christians today. Okay, in the, in the uh, ancient Near East, even among the pagan nations, the ritual of ceremonially covering a person or even an object with scented oil symbolized a transfer of sanctity from a deity to that person or even that object. And so it was considered uh, a sacramental or consecrating act to anoint someone or something with oil. But more specifically, in biblical scripture, the oil prefigured the coming of the Holy Spirit to transform believers and followers of Jesus Christ, as explained in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. So you're getting the picture here. Saul wasn't being made better. Saul was being made new. And when God makes you new, there is always a transformation that takes place. A change that is radical and radically obvious, by the way, to everyone around you. Because becoming a Christian is not just about believing something new. It's about becoming something new. Saul was not the same person that day as he was the day before. His heart when leaving the city was not the same as when he entered the city. And the change was so transformational that all who knew him saw what was coming out of him and wondered if it was even the same Saul they knew before. And of course we know it wasn't. 
It wasn't the same Saul because from the moment he received the word of God, everything in him changed, which meant everything coming out of him changed. And it was so powerful and so transformational that every single person who knew him was amazed by it. Now, the question is, can the same be said of you? Is the transformational work of the Spirit of God through the Word of God so clearly obvious in your life that everyone who knows you sees it and is affected deeply by it? Or is there little evidence of real change in your life? In case, by the way, you're wondering specifically what that change is supposed to look like, the Apostle Paul describes it in detail in Galatians 5:22 through 26. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Okay? Being born again means being born of His Spirit, according to Jesus in John 3, 6 through 8. And so when God makes you new, He fills you with His own Spirit, which means the fruit of His Spirit becomes evident in yours. Because whatever's in you is what comes out of you. And so if you're in fact full of his spirit, then the fruit of that same spirit is what will come out of you. Listen, for everyone who knows you to see and experience and be deeply affected by. And of course, we don't, we don't have time to work through every fruit of the spirit described here. So we'll just take the first one, love which happens to be the greatest of them all, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13.3, and according to Jesus in Matthew 22, and according to the Apostle John in 1 John 4, and according to the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4, and according to James, the brother of Jesus in James 2, right? To, to love God and to love one another is God's greatest commandment and our highest ideal. It fulfills the law and covers a multitude of sins, and it happens to be proof that we are, in fact, made new. As a matter of fact, without love, the Apostle John says transformation is impossible. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 1 John 4.20 and I'm just telling you, this is, this is where it gets real, real fast. Do you love people who hate you? Do you love people who disagree with you? How about this? Do you love people who stand for everything you don't? Do you love them? Do you love people who don't believe what you believe? Or think how you think or act like you want them to? Has God's love transformed you to the point that every single person who knows you can see it plainly, powerfully coming out of you as you love people even when they don't love you back? 
is God's transforming love. Is it actually transforming you? I can tell you this. If it is, then everyone around you will know it. Because they'll see it coming out of you. Why? Because whatever is in you is what comes out of you. So just answer this. If a total stranger looked at your social media posts for the past year, would they think to themselves, there's a guy who loves God and loves other people? Or would they think, boy, that guy's angry? Would they think that there's a woman full of love for others? Or there's a woman full of hurt toward others? Because you cannot say you love God if you hate your brother. Listen, if a total stranger were to look at your finances for a year, how you spend and where you invest your money, would they think, now there's someone who really loves God and other people? Or would they think, well, there's someone who really loves himself, herself, more than anyone else? Because you cannot say you love God if you hate your brother. What if, a, what if a total stranger were to listen into your conversations about what's going on in our world today and the lost people in it? Would it be obvious to that person who doesn't know you that you've clearly been transformed by the love of God because of your obvious love for Him and for others? Or would they be saddened to hear yet another dissenting, hateful voice among the masses of people who have drawn their battle lines in the sand? I'm just telling you, it it matters that we answer these questions honestly because you cannot say you love God if you hate your brother. By the way, loving God and loving others has little to do with feelings. You understand? Feelings can be wonderful and at times very affirming. But love isn't a feeling. Love is a choice. You have to choose to love people every single day of your life, whether you feel like it or not. 17th century Scottish pastor and theologian Samuel Rutherford once wrote, believe God's love and power more than you believe your own feelings and experiences. Your rock is Christ, and it is not the rock that ebbs and flows, but the sea. Let's keep reading, verses 14 through 22. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you've rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you've said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands." Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found, 
So they inquired again of the Lord, is, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. Verse 13 says that when Saul finished prophesying, he came to the high place, which it's also referenced back in verse 5 as Gibeah Elohim. It literally means hill of God in the Hebrew, otherwise known as Gibeah, Saul's hometown. So back home now, Saul's uncle asked Saul where he's been, to which Saul replies plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. And this is actually a key part of the story when it comes to understanding what was going on inside of Saul at this point, which we're going to see in a moment. And then Samuel brings all of Israel together to cast lots to determine who their first human king would be. Uh, the casting of lots was a common practice, not, uh, actually not only in Israel, but throughout the ancient world. And often the Lord did indeed give guidance in this way to his people. The, uh, the land of Canaan was allocated by Lot in Joshua 18.10. Lots were used to decide the fate of the two goats on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, 8 through 10. Uh, the person responsible for Israel's great defeat at Ai was discovered by uh, a Lot in Joshua 7, 16 through 18. There are multiple references in the Proverbs where the Lord's providence is confirmed by the casting of Lots. And even in Acts 1, 26, we find the apostles concerning uh, Judas's replacement casting Lots and praying to determine who that will be. The point being... The people were not only well familiar with the casting of lots to determine the will of God, but they trusted the method. Yet Samuel not, already, uh, not only already knew, of course, that Saul was to be their king, he'd already anointed Saul as king, right? So why bother casting lots? Well, it was for the Israelites' benefit to use a method of choosing a king that they knew and trusted so they wouldn't accuse Samuel of simply choosing a favorite, right? Someone who would do his bidding. And so he cast lots, and the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's tribe, is taken by lot. Then he cast lots again, and the Matrites, Saul's clan, was taken by lot. And then he cast lots again, and Saul is taken by lot. Great. Pretty, pretty cut and dry, very clear who God had chosen to be their king. There was only one problem. Nobody can find Saul. They're searching for him to publicly install him as the king of the Israelites. But they can't find him anywhere. And so they ask God, hey, was there a mistake? Right? Is there someone else who's supposed to be king, and you can almost picture God shaking his head as he tells the people, no, no, he's, he's over there, hiding in the baggage. In Samuel's day, around the perimeter, the outside edges of their encampments, they would pile up their equipment or baggage. And so out there on the edge of the camp, the tallest, best-looking, raised-in-a-rich family chosen by God himself, guaranteed to be the king of Israel, hero of the people, was hiding underneath a pile of baggage like a scared little boy. What? What in the world was going on with Saul? We got a glimpse of it in verse 16 when he refused to tell his uncle anything about being anointed king. Listen, even though his hair had to be dripping with oil, right? When they anointed people back then, it wasn't a, a dab of oil on your forehead. They poured the bottle out. Why do you think his uncle was asking what Samuel told him? 
But he doesn't tell him. It's, it's not like it was going to be a secret anyway. Saul knew good and well that Samuel was coming to town to make the announcement, which is why Saul crawls up under a pile of baggage in a desperate attempt to conceal his true identity as king from the people because he knew he was about to be announced as king. But why? Why hide? Right? Remember, this was after Saul was met by Samuel himself, the great prophet and judge of Israel, who told Saul all that was on Saul's mind, including what had happened to the donkeys that Saul was looking for. This was after Samuel makes Saul the guest of honor at the feast and feeds him a sacred meal in front of all the guests. This was after Saul was given the very best accommodations that Samuel had to offer. It was after Samuel anointed Saul as king. It was after he prophesied down to the last detail everything that was going to happen to Saul. It was after every single word of that prophecy came true. It was after Saul was given a new heart. It was after he was turned into a new man. It was after he prophesied himself. It was after he'd been totally transformed by the power of God and just to top it all off Samuel cast lots among tens of thousands of Israelites and Saul is confirmed before all the people to be their first king why in the world after all of that after gladly receiving all of the kingly treatment Samuel could offer him why would Saul now hide himself like a scared little boy from the life God had called him to and equipped him for it's because Saul wanted to enjoy the benefits of being a king without accepting the responsibility that came with it and before we pile on the criticisms We'd all do well to take a long, honest look in the mirror. Because when God makes you new, there's always a decision that must be made after that. There is always a responsibility that comes with it. To embrace that new life that he's called you to and equipped you for. Or to spend your life hiding from it. Because the fact is, a lot of us Christians today, I think if we're being honest... We want the benefits of being God's chosen people without the responsibility that comes with it. Right? We like being new creations in Christ Jesus. We like knowing our sins are forgiven and paid for. We like knowing our eternity is secure. We like knowing that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. We like having his spirit inside of us. We like the promise of his peace and joy and faith and hope and love always being available to us. We like all of that. It's what we're supposed to do with all of that that we don't like very much. The part where Jesus says, Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16, 25. We don't like that part very much. Or the part where he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit from apart from me. What can you do? Absolutely nothing. John 15, 5. We don't really like that part. Or the part where he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Are you kidding me? John 15, 12. We're supposed to love like that. 
Or the part where he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9, 23. Who does that? Or the part where he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. I don't know if I can do that part. Or the part where he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Matthew 5, 39. Are you kidding me? Or what about the part where he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Matthew 5, 40. Or the part where he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, you go with them two miles. Matthew 5, 41. Or what about the part where he says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Matthew 5, 42. Or the part where he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, 44. Do you understand? You were made new for a purpose. Being made new is God's gift to you. What you do with that, that's your gift to him. And so look, if you're a Christian, the moment you were made new in Christ, that's the moment you were called and equipped to do everything on that list we just read and more. But you know, he won't make you do it. And there are countless Christians, countless Christians who live their entire lives hiding from the life that God has called them to and equipped them for because we like the benefits of being the people of God without the responsibility that comes with it. So you have, a, you have a decision to make. If you're a Christian, you have to choose. Every single day, you have to choose when you wake up what you're going to do with the power and anointing and purpose and giftings, all of that fruit of the Spirit that He put inside of you when He made you a new creation. Because it's all there for a purpose far beyond your own benefit. In fact, it's there for you to give away, to fully expend every day, every bit of that power and anointing and purpose and gifting, loving God and loving others with everything you've got. Or, or you can live a nice life, comfortable and safe. Like a scared little child hiding from your responsibility as a new creation in Christ. The 19th century Scottish minister Alexander McLaren once wrote, ability involves responsibility. Power to its last particle is duty. In other words, you're responsible for what you do or do not do with every single thing you've been given. And yet looking at the state of the modern church, English evangelist and author Leonard Ravenhill said, today's church wants to be raptured from responsibility. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 23 to the end of the chapter. Uh, 
Then they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So God tells them where Saul is hiding, and they promptly collect him from the luggage pile, which had to be fairly awkward. Samuel, without missing a beat, says, look at this guy. Clearly, he's the one you've all been waiting for. And all the people shouted, long live the king, until the party was over. Right Until it was time to go home when a group of them, despite Saul's obviously impressive physical appearance, despite uh, the endorsement of Samuel, the most respected and revered Israelite of them all at the time, and despite the fact that Saul was clearly chosen by Lot as God's man for the job, still there were some worthless fellows who said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. Didn't matter that Saul was right where God wanted him to be. Didn't matter that Saul was God's man for the job because as far as they were concerned, Saul wasn't their man for the job. And so they despised him for it. And can I just tell you, even when God himself transforms you, makes you new, and places you right where he wants you in this life, when God makes you new, there will always be some who will reject you because of it. It's a, it's a proven fact. No matter how much you are ever right where God wants you, not everyone will accept you. And my official pastoral advice to you is, get over it. Just get over it as fast as you can. In fact, I stole that from Jesus, who said, if the world hates you, you know it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 15, 18, and 19. Why are we surprised when the world hates us? Jesus told us it would be so. I can honestly tell you guys, I wish everyone liked me. I really do. I'm, I'm a, I am by nature a people pleaser. In fact, I wish I wasn't, but I am because I really want people to like me. And yet I learned a long time ago that no matter how hard I ever try, there will always be some people who will reject me. It's an undeniable fact because I'll never be enough for some people to like who I am or, or how God has made me or what he's called me to. And guess what? Whether you like it or not, the same is true of you. Just as Saul was accepted by some and rejected by others, when God makes you new and you go hard after the life he's called you to and equipped you for, there will be some people who will accept you and your message and even follow you. And there will be others who will reject you. But do you understand that is not an excuse for you to stop doing what he's called you to and equipped you for? So look, whatever life God has planned for you, 
You go after that life with everything you've got and go ahead and expect that along the way you're going to be rejected by some people and accepted by others. And if that bothers you, just know you're in very good company. Because if they rejected Jesus, well, they're going to reject you too. Don't let it stop you. On the contrary, let it motivate you to press into Christ and to press on with the life you are meant to live. Okay? So much of the church today acts so much like the world today. Instead of acting like Jesus, even though we've been made new, we've been transformed into new creations in Christ, and it's because we've grown accustomed to the benefits of being the people of God without accepting the responsibility that goes along with it. Why, though? You know, why do we do that? It's because we fear being rejected by the world. Let me tell you something. At the end of this life, you're not going to answer to this world. You're going to answer to Jesus Christ and what you did with the life he called you to and equipped you for. And I would far rather be rejected by the world now than to be rejected by him then. Which means you have a decision to make. To be made new in him. And listen, if you have been, then to accept the full responsibility that goes along with that. Living the life he's called you to and equipped you for. Which, by the way, looks a whole lot like the life that Jesus lived. It's not an easy life. No. No, it's a life full of challenges and battles where human souls are at stake. It's a life that will take you far beyond what is comfortable for you or predictable or safe. It's a life that some people won't understand and in fact others will even reject you because of it. You know what? It's also the most exceptional, powerful, inspired and fulfilling life you could ever hope to live. Or... Or you can go on living a nice life. Comfortable. And safe. Like a scared little child. Hiding from the life that could be. The one he's called you to and equipped you for. The whole reason. You've been made new. New. 